Comics. Comics. Welcome to ORP, otherwise known as Omen Revelations Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Nunley. And I'm your co-host, uh, Steve Sellers. On ORP, we like to talk about geek stuff, pop culture, including movies and TV series, as well as comic books and comic characters. Uh, but that's not all, is it, Mike? No, it's not, Steve. We're also writers for Omen, Omen Comics and Revelation Comics. So we like to talk about both writing and our comics. So podcast and chill with us. Today we're going to be talking about a blind lawyer from Hell's Kitchen, New York. Of course, I'm talking about Matt Murdock, a.k.a. Daredevil, the man without fear and the devil of Hell's Kitchen. We're going to cover the comics, the movies, and his Netflix shows, including The Defenders. Uh, the character first appeared in Daredevil number 1 in April of 1964 and was created by writer-editor Stan Lee and artist Bill Everett with character design input from Jack Kirby, who devised uh, Daredevil's Billy Club and may or may not have designed the basic image of Daredevil's initial costume. Whether he did or not, Everett modified it to how it appeared in that first issue. Um, that original costume design was a combination of black, yellow, and red, reminiscent of acrobat tights. Uh, it wasn't until issue number seven that Wally Wood introduced Daredevil's iconic red costume, an issue where he fights the considerably more powerful Submariner, a.k.a. Prince Namor. Uh, Writer-artist Frank Miller's influential rebooting tenure on the title uh, in the early 1980s cemented the character as a popular and influential part of the Marvel Universe. But as you are more familiar with the comics, uh, why don't you tell us about those, Steve? Uh, sure, I'd be glad to. Um, according to Stan Lee, he created his version of Daredevil because he was looking for an interesting flaw to give a new hero. And that makes sense, since uh, Marvel was always about heroes with feet of clay, the world outside your window, and all those things. Um, Stan decided that he would go with a blind detective uh, with the idea of blindness as a flaw he wanted to explore. And he took the name Daredevil from uh, an old public domain hero from the Golden Age. Um, you might know him best uh, as the death-defying devil from uh, Pro uh, Dynamite's Project Superpowers today. Um, but Stan started thinking about what kind of job he would give his Daredevil, and he settled on a lawyer, since that hadn't been done in the Marvel Universe at that time, and She-Hulk wouldn't come around until the 1980s. Um, Stan then developed the basic origin idea with uh, Matt's father being involved with a mob, ultimately sacrificing his life so that Matt could have a future. Um, while many of these elements are not that original in and of themselves, uh, Stan wove them together in a way that was unique and memorable. Now, it's interesting that you mentioned the Submariner issue because that's my favorite Silver Age Daredevil story of all time. Um, Namor decides to go to New York to press a legal claim against the surface world against because of the grievances done to Atlantis, and he tries to hire Matt Murdock as his lawyer. When Matt doesn't take the case, uh, Namor goes on a rampage to force the world to listen to him. Um, so he goes at his Daredevil uh, to try to stop Namor, which sounds insane on the face of it. Uh, Daredevil stands no chance in this fight whatsoever. I mean, Namor is vastly more powerful, as you say. Um, after beating Matt pretty badly, um, Matt refuses to give up, and it's clear to Namor that Dee Dee would rather die than let Namor win. And this earns the respect of Namor, which who stops what he's doing and returns to Atlantis peacefully. Uh, 
Um, this story establishes, for me, a very important part of Matt's character. He is a fighter just like his father, and he never, ever gives up on what he thinks is right, even if it's a lost cause. I absolutely love the story, and it helps that Wally Wood delivers some beautiful art in this issue. But there's one other interesting thing about uh, Stan, specifically his uh, portrayal of Blind Hero. Um, Mike, do you want to talk a bit about that? Sure. Um, Stan was initially uh, worried that blind people might be offended at how much he exaggerated the way a blind person's other senses were enhanced. Uh, at least that is until he started receiving letters from people talking about how much uh, blind people really enjoyed having the stories read to them. I, I personally love that. Uh, Daredevil was um, actually a, a partial inspiration for my Dragon Girl character. as She too at least started out with having a disability. Oh, awesome. Uh, this is why Stan is the man. Um, Stan came into the book with the best of intentions, as we can see. But like you mentioned earlier, one interesting thing about Daredevil is that he was not a great character out the starting gate. Um, there was a lot about him early on that just didn't work. Uh, his original costume design was yellow and brown, and that just didn't hit the right note. Uh, he had a weak rogues gallery for years and years, at least until Bullseye and the Kingpin entered the picture many years later. Uh, imagine any major series going on for 130 issues without any of the book's signature villains around. It just doesn't happen. And Daredevil's supporting cast wasn't fully fleshed out either, which is probably why Matt has gone from love interest to love interest for years. Uh, some of the puzzle pieces were there, but it took the work of many writers and artists to make Daredevil the great series it is today. Um, I'll try to go through some quick highlights of some of the more memorable ones. Now, um, I'll first talk about Jerry Conway. Uh, he brought in the Black Widow, who was a co-star in the book for a while. Um, that run focuses on Matt and Natasha's relationship and a brief move to San Francisco. Um, but I think if this run shows anything, it's that Matt belongs in Hell's Kitchen. Uh, but I love the D uh, D Widow romance, even if I don't see them working together in the long term. Can you can you elaborate on, on Daredevil and Black Widow's relationship a little? Uh, I mean, I've, I've heard it referenced, but... I always wondered how that worked on a practical level with them leading such, I mean, totally different lives. Oh, not easily. Uh, they met during an encounter with Daredevil's old enemy, the Owl, and uh, Natasha saved his life. Um, there were some early misunderstandings between them that led to conflict, but it was more like a game between them. Um, both of them, I think, liked the thrill of the chase, and I think that that was what initially drew them together for a while. Um, but since then, it's really been an on-off uh, on relationship with a Widow coming in and out of Matt's life depending on what she's involved with. Um, both of them are damaged people with dark pasts, so Matt usually deals with it a bit better. Um, Natasha as a spy is about keeping secrets while Matt is concerned with the truth. Um, his senses always know when she's hiding something. And because of that, Matt is one of the few people who can see past the cool front that Natasha puts on, which is one of the things I love about them. But uh, Natasha also fears that kind of intimacy because people get hurt when they get too close to her. So um, it's a very complicated complicated relationship between them, uh, with neither really being the kind to settle down. Um, while I don't think either of them are the type to work as a couple long term, uh, they are a lot of fun to watch together. I, 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 can, I can definitely see that. I mean, a relationship can be a lot of fun and still be bad for both people involved. Uh, ultimately, it does seem like the two of them would have been burning the candle at both ends, though. Yeah, and uh, speaking of uh, complicated relationships, um, I will talk about Anne Nocenti. Um, it really shouldn't have been impossible for anyone to follow uh, Frank Miller's groundbreaking run, but Anne Nocenti did it. Uh, she's best known for creating Typhoid Mary, uh, a woman with dissociative identity disorder uh, with low-level psionic powers. 
Um, Matt has to deal with temptation, and he grows stronger for having faced it. Um, John Romita Jr. is one of uh, Daredevil's best artists of all time, and he makes his debut on the book here. Also, um, Matt Murdock meets the actual devil. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Wait a minute, wait a minute. I have to hear this story. Tell me about Matt meeting the devil. I mean, the devil meeting the devil himself. Yeah, it's just perfect. Um, now, Heart of Darkness does get a bit complicated, but I'll see what I can do to kind of uh, streamline it for you. Um, the devil in question is Mephisto, and uh, this happens towards the end of the Nocenti uh, Romita Jr. run. Um, Mephisto gives the test to his son, Blackheart, um, challenging him to try to corrupt Daredevil and make him commit an unpardonable sin. This plan, as you might imagine, fails. So Daredevil and a few other people, including Karnak and Gorgon of the Inhumans, don't ask, end up trapped in Mephisto's realm and they're all separated. Um, but what follows is pretty awesome. Um, Daredevil has to walk alone in a seemingly endless winter, fighting desperately against the elements just to survive. This fails to break Matt. Um, he fight, manages to light a fire which enrages Mephisto since he can't abide any kind of purity in his realm. Um, Mephisto sends waves of demons after Daredevil to stop him because of this. That fails to break him. Um, with some small help from Blackheart, uh, Daredevil actually manages to reach Mephisto, and he calls Mephisto out on everything he's done. Um, Mephisto represents controls of the souls of his realm, but Daredevil realized that what Mephisto fears is freedom, which is specifically the freedom to choose between good and evil. Um, Daredevil then compounds this by granting forgiveness to Mephisto, winning his game. Um, and this impressed me. Uh, how many heroes can you think of who have it within themselves to forgive an embodiment of purest evil? With a bit of last-minute help from the Silver Surfer, um, Mephisto is forced to bring everyone home, and everyone gets out of Mephisto's realm uh, safe and sound. But uh, Anno Seni just got this character, uh, the deep-rooted Catholicism, his idealism, his commitment to justice against all odds, and Matt's sheer stubborn refusal to ever give up. And John Romita Jr. delivers some really gorgeous visuals in the story. Uh, the Daredevil versus Mephisto finale looks epic on the page. Wow. That sounds like a powerful story. You know, in Irish culture, heart is everything. And because of that, you can be just as praised for being able to take a serious beating and keep fighting as you can for winning the fight. Um, but fighting your way through insurmountable odds and winning like Matt did earns the highest honor an Irishman can give. I mean, you'll find his picture next to heart in the dictionary. Oh, absolutely. Um, and I'll bring up uh, an, another time when we really saw a little bit of that, um, which is the run uh, by Brian Michael Bendis. Um, Bendis came in uh, during the Marvel Knights run on Daredevil, and he's regarded as one of the best Daredevil writers after Frank Miller. Um, Bendis turns Daredevil into a full-on crime book, exploring the King's Prince crime family, a uh, full-on soprano style, and how the internal politics of the Fisk organization leads into one of Matt's biggest crisis moments. Um, Daredevil's identity gets leaked to the press, and Matt has to deal with the consequences of his own carelessness. Um, it's just really great stuff. Also, uh, Alex Maliev does some haunting and atmospheric work, and I love his covers. Um, I consider this run a must-read. Um, after that, uh, Ed Brubaker uh, followed from Bendis, and he started with a storyline with Matt Murdock in prison, where he's stuck in jail with a kingpin. Um, Brubaker builds on what Bendis does uh, with more of a noir emphasis, and after he's out of prison, uh, Matt gets uh, full-on self-destructive, and he pays a huge price for it. Um, it's a really solid run, and Michael Lark's art uh, clicks so well with uh, Brubaker's scripts. 
Um, but my personal favorite writer after Miller is Mark Wade. Um, by this point, um, Matt had misery heaped onto him for years. So Wade takes a lighter approach, but where the book can be fun, deep down it's a complex and psychological take. Um, Matt decides that the best way to deal with all of his trauma is to pretend to be happy, fake it until he makes it, but deep down he's still broken and self-destructive. Um, Foggy understandably thinks that he's losing it, and, and you can understand why. Um, Matt has to overcome his own ego and try to make peace with himself, all while trying to salvage a secret identity. Um, his friendship with Foggy is a huge part of the run, too, and they all grow together during this run. Also, uh, it's probably the funniest Daredevil moment ever, as Matt Murdock goes to a Christmas party wearing a shirt that reads, I'm not Daredevil. <laughs> I, I, that... That still makes me laugh to this day. Um, also, the villain selection is really good, uh, including some fun matchups against the likes of Claw, the Mole Man, and the Spot. Um, none of them villains that, that he really traditionally takes on. Um, but probably my favorite Wade villain is Ikari, who is a ninja with all of Matt's hyper senses, plus he can see. Um, really great villain. Uh, the art by Paolo Rivera and Chris Somni um, is clean, bright, and fits a tone perfectly. Uh, the book makes Somni's name as an artist. Um, and I would say from Bendis to Wade feels like one continuous run, which I really love about all that period. And, and then, but finally, um, I'm going to talk about uh, Chip Zdarsky in terms of new stuff. Um, this is the current run of the book, and I don't want to fully judge it yet, but at this point, I think it has the potential to be a top five run if it stays as good as it has been. Um, what ends up happening is that Matt uh, accidentally kills a man, and he has to face up to his own guild and pay his debt to society. Meanwhile, the Kingpin is mayor of New York, and he has an arc where he realizes the job isn't as easy as it looks, and those uh, stories tie together. But I love what Zdarsky especially does with Elektra, who decides to take Matt's place as Daredevil to win his trust back uh, because she lost his trust uh, in the middle of the run. Um, the tone gets darker, uh, certainly darker than Wade's, but it isn't oppressively so, and the book plays on the religious angle very well. But he, the most influential Daredevil creator, and the definitive by far, is Frank Miller, um, who filled in many of the gaps that plagued the book in early years. Um, key characters like Elektra, Bullseye, Kingpin, Stick, Ben Yurik, and The Hand all made their mark with Miller's legendary run on the book. Um, I also want to give a brief shout out to Miller's early collaborator, uh, Roger McKenzie, who either wrote or co-wrote the first year of Miller stories, and he tends to be sadly overlooked today. But I want to stress one thing about Daredevil. He's the rare mainstream character that's never had a truly bad run or a story considered so bad that it's permanently damaged the character. Uh, whenever the subject is brought up, most people point to an event story called Shadowland, which today is pretty much ignored and never brought up again. And that's the worst this book gets. Aside from that, a bad Daredevil run is nearly just forgettable. Um, most of his runs range from good to legendary. Even writers who have had divisive runs on other books, like Bendis, have delivered career-high work on Daredevil. This character has been ludicrously blessed with great writing and art over the years. Um, are there any standout runs that you've read and enjoyed on Daredevil, Mike? Um, there, there is. Uh, I, I've not read nearly as much as you, uh, I'm afraid. Uh, I had read Scattered Daredevil issues before Volume 2 started with uh, Kevin Smith's amazing eight-issue Guardian Devil run with art by Joe Quesada and Jimmy Palmiani. Uh, that trade has several big, jaw-dropping moments in it and immediately sucks you into the hell that can be the life of the Devil of Hell's Kitchen. Uh, a whole bunch gets thrown at Matt right away. Uh, his girlfriend, Karen Page, breaks up with him and then finds out she has HIV from her time as a porn star. And, as tends to happen when Matt feels lost, Matt leans hard on his Catholic faith for support, 
but then things really pile pile on. Uh, a 15 year old girl who knows that Matt is Daredevil leaves her baby with him, claiming that this baby was a virgin birth. His partner Foggy Nelson uh, is accused of murdering a wealthy divorcee he was having an affair with after she seemingly turned into a demon. Uh, Rosalind Sharp, who is both the their boss and Foggy's mother, fires Foggy to avoid having his arrest affect uh, the financial first future of their law firm. Uh, Matt quits the firm in disgust, um, but he is no sooner contacted by a man called Nicholas McCabe's, who claims that the child that uh, is now in his possession uh, and and in his care is actually the Antichrist, leaving and he even leaves Matt a small crucifix that turns out to be covered in an indetectable drug that would make Daredevil hostile towards anyone who suggested that the child is innocent. Um but before Matt knew that, he actually asked Black Widow for help, and uh, she suggested that the that the child uh, was innocent, and uh, he attacked her. And in that moment, uh, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> okay, <laughs> in a moment that left my jaw on the floor. I mean, I I, I had actually I put the book down for a minute. I had to. I'm like, hold on a second. <laughs> Daredevil throws the baby off the roof forcing Black Widow to jump off the roof after the child. Uh, oh, man, that was that was crazy intense. Uh, Doctor Strange ends up having to remove the drug from Daredevil's system, and they even consult Mephisto about the child. Uh, Mephisto warns that the child is in danger now, and Daredevil runs off to save the child and ends up at a church where Bullseye has brutally killed several nuns. After a short exchange, Daredevil has to watch as Bullseye shoots Karen Page because he can't get to her quickly enough and steals the baby. Uh, this was another jaw-dropping moment for me. This, I mean, <laughs> Karen Page just got shot by by Bullseye. I, I was this was not something I was expecting to see happen. Uh, you know, especially with the the heaping on of I'm breaking up with you and I have HIV and oh yeah, now I'm dead, <laughs> you know that kind of mm -hmm. thing. But um, this understandably leaves Matt actually contemplating suicide, which is a much bigger deal when you consider that he's a Catholic and they teach you that suicide damns your soul. Uh, Matt goes after McCabe's and tracks him down. He fights his way to the top floor uh, to meet his enemy, the one behind all of this, and finds out that it's Mysterio with a brain tumor. I mean, a, a Spider-Man enemy is that is behind all of this? I mean, I, I didn't see that coming at all. Uh, it turns out Mysterio purchased information about Daredevil from the Kingpin, used artificial insemination to impregnate the girl, drugged Foggy, faked the demonic transformation and the death of the uh, a death of the divorcee, posed as Karen's doctor to fake the HIV diagnosis, and hired Bullseye to lure Daredevil to him for a final confrontation. All of that shit in hopes that Daredevil would kill him. Uh, Daredevil blows Mysterio off and says that he's unoriginal. Kingpin had already attempted to drive him insane once before, and that Mysterio had previously attacked J. Jonah Jameson with fake supernatural occurrences. Despondent, Mysterio frees the baby, and then, noting that his last move was stolen from Craven, shoots himself. Uh, Karen has her funeral and wills a fair sum of money to Matt. Uh, Spider-Man points out while talking to Daredevil later that at the very least uh, an infant's life was saved in all of this and that, that kind of renews Matt's faith. Matt names the baby Karen and gives her up for adoption to a New Jersey couple. Uh, Matt asks Black Widow to forgive him. 
Foggy is released from jail and Matt and Foggy decide to reopen the firm with the money that Matt got from Karen Page. Oh, wow. That is a great choice. And what a great description of it. Um, if you were a fan of comics around that time, that story was huge. Uh, Kevin Smith was known for his films back then, and he was known to be a comics fan, but nobody thought he'd actually write for comics. But Quesada brought him in, and I think it set the tone for my Marvel Knights Daredevil perfectly. Um, while it's not a story I've gone back to in a long time, now I want to, um, because it was a story with uh, lasting consequences, especially with the death of Karen. But it made the point that under Marvel Knights, Daredevil was going back to where it worked best, and that was the noir style introduced by Frank Miller. But it didn't end with Smith's departure uh, when the book really got experimental and crazy. Uh, do you want to talk about that? Sure, sure. Uh, Smith was succeeded by writer-artist David Mack, who wrote the seven-issue Parts of a Whole trade in, in not issues 9 through 15. Now, remember that, that Parts of a Whole title, later because it's going to come up. Um, the arc introduced a mimic named Maya Lopez, a.k.a. Echo, that could do anything she had seen done. Uh, we got to see her in, Ho in the Hawkeye series, which I absolutely loved. In the comic, Maya is a Native American of the Cheyenne Nation who was born deaf. She was initially placed in special education because of her disability, but after using her skills to duplicate a song from a recital, she was placed into the gifted section. During this time, she particularly enjoyed art and dance. But after the death of her father, Maya was raised by the Kingpin, and he attempted to use her to destroy Daredevil. First, he arranged for Matt to meet her, knowing Matt was lonely after the recent death of Karen Page. Then he tricked Maya by convincing her that Daredevil had killed her father. Maya created the identity of Echo based on her ability to copy the motion she sees and fought Daredevil. And having spent several nights watching martial arts movies and video footage of uh, Bullseye and Daredevil fighting, she proved more than a match for Daredevil. But while all of this is going on, behind the masks, Matt and Maya are falling in love. They helped, they helped to fill in the hole they each had in themselves. They were parts of the, the, the parts of the hole that, that the title comes from. And they were an adorable couple too. Uh, with their, with her being deaf and him being blind, uh, they would go on dates uh, to the movie theater where she would tell him what was happening on the screen and he would tell her what was being said. Really on the surface, I mean, it was a match made in heaven. Uh, when Echo come, came after Daredevil to avenge her father's death, he had no idea why she was suddenly attacking him. And she was equally shocked to learn that Matt, her lover, was Daredevil. I mean, Matt was able to explain himself enough to temporarily smooth things over, but Maya was angry at Kingpin's deliberate deception, and she brutally shot the Kingpin, which actually left him blind for a time. Uh, there's no fury greater than a woman scorned. Um, Echo is a really interesting character. Even though she's another one of the many femme fatale characters in Matt's life, um, every so often new love interests have been developed to fill the whole role left by Elektra. Um, what I think sets Echo apart, though, is that she's another character like Matt who has overcome a pretty serious disability um, with her own powers. And the, the difference is that she and Matt are on different sides of the law. Um, the Max stories worked really well, and the unusual style of those stories made them memorable and visually interesting. Um, like you, I also liked Echo and Hawkeye, and I think it made sense for her to show up there, since both Echo and Clint had used the Ronin identity in the comics. Um, not to mention that they both struggle with the same disability. So the conflict in, in that show really clicks. But this is a show about Daredevil. So why don't we talk about how Matt has been portrayed on screen? 
Sure. Um, the character was first portrayed in live action by Rex Smith in the 1989 television movie The Trial of the Incredible Hulk. Uh, Daredevil was in his all-black costume in that one, which kind of bummed me out as a kid as I was only familiar with his red costume at the time. But I remember being very excited to have him on the show. The next person to play Old Hornhead was Ben Affleck in 2003 from the, the Daredevil film. Uh, I actually want to talk about that film a little bit. Um, ben Affleck was ragged on pretty hard about his acting in the film, but I, I honestly don't see any issues with his import with his performance. Uh, I, I thought he did a great job. I mean, do you, what are your thoughts on his acting in the film, Steve? Um, I actually didn't have a problem with Ben uh, Affleck as Matt Murdock, honestly. Uh, I think he's grown as an actor since then, and I think he probably made some of his early mistakes around this point in career. But his, he was charismatic enough to be believable as Matt, and he certainly wasn't imposing enough presence to work as Daredevil. Um, I think Affleck just didn't have the best material to work with, but even then, the movie isn't really that bad. It just has some weird moments, like the playground fight scene that should have killed Matt's secret identity stone dead. But that's not Affleck's fault as an actor, and I think he does the best with what he's been given. I have to agree with you there. I, I think that people's issues have more to do with the writing than they do with Affleck's performance. But let's get into our discussion about the movie. Uh, I'd like to preface this by saying if you've only watched the theatrical version of the film, you're missing out on a much better R-rated director's, ver director's cut version of the film. Uh, there is less focus on the romance between Matt and Electra. Lots of unseen footage focusing on Matt as a lawyer, an important part of his character. Uh, Matt Murdock's interrogation of Officer McKenzie uh, and Foggy learning Wesley's connection uh, to Lisa Tazio's murder and another murder case, a subplot with uh, Coolio's character Dante Jackson. Um, it all has a darker and more violent tone as well, which puts it one step closer to the Frank Miller version most people fell in love with. It also has a much cooler narration at the end of the film. Uh, Daredevil says, violence doesn't discriminate. It hits all of us, the rich, the poor, the healthy, the sick. It comes as cold and bracing as a winter breeze off the Hudson until it sinks into your bones, leaving you with a chill you can't shake. They say that there's no rest for the wicked, but what about the good? The battle of good versus evil is never ending because evil always survives with the help of evil men. As for Daredevil, well, soon the world will know the truth, that this is a city born of heroes, that one man can make a difference. Hmm. Um, I still have yet to see the director's cut, but it's on my agenda to see it one day. Um, I never felt like the theatrical cut was terrible, just more of a fair to middling film. But I have heard that the director's cut improves the film noticeably, and, and one day I really want to go through it and see what it changes. Um, as it is, there are really, really some really cool ideas in it, and I think the film genuinely tries to honor the character, even if the execution doesn't always work. I, I got to agree. Uh, this film put a lot of work into honoring not just the character, but also those who have worked on him over the decades. Uh, but I'm getting a little ahead of myself. Um, Here's the plot of the film as taken from the Marvel database. Uh, as a child, straight-A student, Matt Murdock runs away from his father upon discovering that his father is a thug for a local mobster. He's splashed by some radioactive biohazard material in an accident which blinds him. 
He learns to overcome this disability and develops a kind of sixth sense, which allows him to see by using sound waves to create a mental image of his surroundings like sonar. Uh, his father is murdered by, by King, the Kingpin, and Murdoch vows to avenge him. Years later, Murdoch works as an attorney in Hell's Kitchen, becoming the vigilante known as Daredevil at night. He seeks out and punishes those that he cannot harm in the courtroom. He fights crime in solitude until he meets Elektra. Murdoch warms to Elektra, and they become acquainted with each other. After Elektra's father is killed by Kingpin's assassin, Bullseye, she believes the murderer to be Daredevil, and she seeks him out. Armed with two sides, she beats him in a fight until she realizes who is behind the mask. So she fights with Bullseye instead, and he ends up killing her. Daredevil avenges, avenges Elektra's death and, and allegedly kills Bullseye by throwing him through a church window so that he lands on a police cruiser. Daredevil then brings the fight to Kingpin uh, and severely beats him in his own office despite having the crap kicked out of him already. Daredevil spares Kingpin's life even when he promises that he will be released from prison eventually. During a credit scene, Bullseye, the uh, credit scene, Bullseye is shown in a hospital wing, slowly recovering and still capable of killing. Well, at least a fly. Hmm. Uh, they mostly get the story right, at least going by the synopsis. Um, I'll point out a few places where they make changes to suit the narrative, and you can tell me if it makes sense or not. All right, let me have it. All right. Um, I feel like they gloss over things when it comes to Matt's father. Uh, in the comics, Jack gets some redemption at the end. Um, he refuses to throw a fight because he wanted his son to be proud of him. Um, Matt never finds out his dad was mob-connected until after his death, and that's when he gets his revenge on the mobsters. Um, in Daredevil, The Man Without Fear, uh, this is also why Stick abandons Matt. Um, Matt behaves impulsively when he tries to get revenge on the fixer, and then Stick uh, abruptly ends his training. Um, they also changed the backstory with Electra somewhat. Uh, Electra was originally Matt's college girlfriend, and they broke up after her father died. Um, Electra was already seduced by the hand by then, and Electra loves Matt too much to let her join him in darkness. So they go their own ways, and years later, Electra becomes an assassin and a bounty hunter. Uh, the movie strips a lot of their past away, and while it's more convenient for the movie in some ways, I feel like the relationship loses its depth. Um, but to be fair, they got an awful lot right in this film, uh, much more than I would expect of a lot of superhero movies today. It definitely leaves a lot to be desired as it pertains to their relationship. I mean, while I would, while I would have liked to have it in there, I mean, at the very least, in a small flashback or, or in, in some dialogue somewhere, I guess... I guess if I'm looking at it from the perspective of uh, the runtime limits they were probably facing, um, I, I, I can see it. I will admit that the 2003 Daredevil film definitely got some things wrong. Uh, two of the biggest for me was the Bullseye character and, and his look and having Elektra and yet no stick. Uh, it was like they had all the right pieces and ideas for what they wanted to do, and some passionate people involved even, but I think that things just changed in the execution. Uh, it seemed like they were trying to do a blend of Daredevil Volume 1, Number 1, mixed together with some Frank Miller additions to the cast, like Bullseye, Elektra, and Kingpin. Uh, I would agree with all that. I, I did not like the way Bullseye came across in the film, and I really didn't like the way he looked in the film. Um, I don't think it's Colin Farrell uh, so much as it is the costume design and that Bullseye tattoo. 
the performance on his own was acceptable to me. I'd probably have been less bothered that they hadn't brought it into the comics for a while. But I think the problem with the film structurally is that it was too ambitious and tried to do too much too soon. I think they wanted to do the Electra saga from Miller's run, and I don't think you can do that and the origin all in one film. Uh, Electra is something you do in a sequel, and I think the Netflix show wisely waited until later to bring her in. Uh, they could have done Kingpin and Bullseye in the first film without a problem. Uh, they could just adapt Man Without Fear or uh, Frank Miller's uh, Gang War story. Um, the filmmakers came in with good intentions, but I, I think they aimed too big and they weren't able to make it all work. I think you nailed it there. It, it was kind of a Spider-Man 3 thing where they did try to do too much in, in one film, as you said. But there are definitely things Daredevil in Daredevil that they got very right, especially when compared to Daredevil's first issue in 1964. Uh, one of the best things that I think about the movie is the depiction of Daredevil's sonar abilities. Uh, those were exactly how they were supposed to be. Uh, but I also liked all of the plugs and cameos. Uh, Stan Lee, Frank Miller, and Kevin Smith, each notable for their work on the Daredevil comics, also have cameo roles throughout the film, with the latter playing a forensic assistant named Jack Kirby, which is awesome. Uh, Frank Miller appears in the movie as a man with a pen through his head uh, from when Bullseye steals the motorcycle. <laughs> He's actually listed in the credits as man with pen through head. <laughs> Stan Lee, of course, appears as the man uh, young Matt saves uh, from walking into traffic. I also like the nod to the other writers when Fallon was listing the fighters who had uh, all taken had taken a fall for Jack Murdoch's fights. He says, Miller, Mac, Bendis, uh, they're all my fighters just like you, obviously referencing Frank Miller, David Mack, and Brian Michael Bendis. You'll notice on the marquee out in front uh, of the theater when, when they're going into the fight, it reads Jack the Devil Murdoch versus John Romita. John Romita was an artist in the 1960s who worked on uh, the Daredevil comic books. Uh, the, char the character Father Everett's name uh, is a reference to the co-creator Bill Everett. Uh, they definitely did their part in paying respects to all those who have paid the wave, uh, and they did a really good job in a very cool fashion, if you ask me. Um, what are the things you thought were done right about Daredevil, Steve? Uh, I can think of a few things. Um, firstly, I really enjoyed Michael Clark Duncan as the Kingpin. While I think Vincent D'Onofrio is an amazing and much more comics-accurate Kingpin, I feel like Duncan was huge in imposing Bill and his presence in the film. Uh, he rocked that white suit, and he looked like he could crush you with a grape, like a grape. Um, I, I also agree that they did a really good job of thinking through the radar sense and the logical consequences of Matt's senses. Uh, one interesting idea that I remember is that Matt sleeps in a sensory deprivation chamber that he keeps in his room. Um, that, to me, made perfect sense. His senses are so attuned that he can hear noises from blocks away. That's got to make it difficult to get a good night's sleep. I mean, no wonder he's always going out at night and fighting crime. Um, also, I appreciated the little nods and fad callbacks that only comics readers would appreciate. Um, they reference a number of creators' names in the film. Uh, Joe Quesada is the guy they're chasing early in the film, for instance. Um, you know, Bendis and Mac, as you know, were writers on the Marvel Knights run and Daredevil. Um, Officer McKenzie is Roger McKenzie, who co-wrote during Miller's first year on Daredevil. As for the John Romita reference, um, I'm not certain if it was a reference to John Romita Sr. or John Romita Jr., as both of them did memorable work on Daredevil. Um, I would guess Sr., given the context, but it's hard to really say. I, I feel like this movie was read for comics fans, though, and not every comic book movie can really say that. If I had to guess, I would say that they left out the senior and junior to have it reference both John Romita's since how they both worked on it. Um, 
and this and th- this actually has you know made for the fans written all over it. I mean, uh, I mean, just so many nods and references and Easter eggs and all that kind of stuff. Uh, we are in one hundred percent agreement there. Uh, so let's compare the events of the film with the very first issue of Daredevil. In the comic and in the film, Matt is an Irish Catholic kid that grew up in the rough neighborhood of Hell's Kitchen. They did change Matt's dad's name from being Battling Jack Murdoch to Jack the Devil Murdoch in the movie, but I'm not sure that really affected the character at all. Uh, they also made him a collector for Fallon, a known gangster who replaces the fixer from the comic. And this does color the character a little differently. In the comics, Jack Murdoch went back to being a boxer to support his son after he went blind. And he signed on with the fixer because he was the only person willing to contract Jack Murdoch because of his age. In both the film and the comic, Jack teaches Matt the importance of education and nonviolence, hoping to see his son become a better man than himself. But as Jack is collecting for Fallon, this message is very hypocritical and takes away from the character, in my opinion. Hmm. Uh, fair points. Um, I, I'm actually fine with uh, Jack the Devil Murdoch instead of battling Jack. Um, they weren't going to go with the original way that Matt got the name, which is that Daredevil was a childhood nickname that the other kids in the neighborhood gave him. Um, this way is fine, since Matt is basically taking his father's stage name to honor his memory, and that's feel like something Matt would do. Uh, as for Jack collecting, um, I think we needed to see that Jack was threatened into doing it and that it wasn't by choice. Um, Man Without Fear makes it very clear that Jack is forced by the mobsters to work for them, that he's protecting Matt by doing that. Uh, so when he sacrifices himself, it's the final act of a man who's trying to redeem himself in the eyes of his son. Uh, I feel like the movie misses that. Oh, totally. Totally. I agree. I would have liked the, that story about Jack a whole lot more. That's so much more satisfying. Uh, in Daredevil number one, Matt saves an old man from getting hit by an out-of-control truck on the street, which the movie subtly threw in later with Stan's cameo. Uh, and Matt is blinded by a radioactive substance that spills from the truck, and that's how Matt gets his powers. In the film, he was running through a construction site after seeing his father at one of his collections, and a forklift swerves to miss him and punctures some containers that spill out onto Matt, Matt's eyes and face. This change makes Matt less of a hero in the film without having received his injury because he was saving someone and it does affect the tone of the character mm, i'm not happy with that bit either i must admit i, I think matt's selflessness and saving the old man is an important part of his origin story and i don't care for them taking it out like that i feel like the origin works better if matt either doesn't know about the mob stuff or if he suspects but is turning a blind eye to it for whatever reason as you and I mentioned before, they, they should have gone with the Man Without Fear storyline as it concerns Jack. Uh, the way the film did it just didn't fit right. Uh, things diverge a little bit at this point from the from Daredevil number one. Uh, in Daredevil number one, Matt having powers in a costume appears to be all he needed to be a badass. Um, in the film, Matt teaches himself how to hone his senses and trains himself how to fight. But we really only see him training uh, to, to be a boxer uh, rather than a martial artist. Like he copies the stuff he sees his dad doing. Uh, but I mean, either way, it's all a bit of hand-waving. 
I, I honestly would have preferred to have seen have Stick in there, especially because of the connection Matt and Electra have with Stick, having both been trained by him, as I mentioned before. Uh, in Frank Miller's run, Matt began training with Stick to master his body and its abilities, eventually becoming a highly skilled martial artist. Matt would also learn to focus and use his remaining amplified senses in ways he would likely not have come to on his own. That's one of the many reasons the Netflix series was so much better, but we'll get into that in a minute. Uh, in Daredevil number one and in the movie, Jack Murdoch refuses to throw a fight because his son is in the audience and he is killed by one of the fixers or rather Fallon's uh, men. In the case of the movie, Fallon, who, who uh, <clears throat> used who was then his muscle, Wilson Fisk, to kill Matt's father, Jack. Um, Fisk even left his signature rose on Jack Murdoch's body, the rose sense being the very thing that tells Matt who it was that killed his father. Uh, in the movie, they explain Matt becoming an often uh, pro bono lawyer and daredevil uh, by a couple quick lines, which were his father saying that he should become a doctor or a lawyer. Uh, and, and the lines, we made each other a silent promise to never give up, to be fearless, to stick up for the long shots like us. But in Daredevil number one, Matt became Daredevil in direct response to his father's death and even has to get up, uh, get around his father saying that he wanted Matt not to use violence to do so by adopting the Daredevil persona, which could use physical force. Having promised his father not to use violence to deal with his problems, Matt uh, adopts this uh, new identity. The original costume, of course, uh, was not the red one most people are familiar with, but in, in both in the movie and in Daredevil 1, Matt colors, Matt's colors seem to be uh, chosen based on uh, his father's boxing robe, uh, yellow and black in the comics and classic red in the movie. Uh, one big difference uh, is the time it takes Daredevil to avenge uh, the death of his father. In the movie, as it's Kingpin and uh, that Daredevil is really fighting, and there's the addition of Bullseye, it's years later. In the comic, Matt makes a costume and uses his superhuman abilities to confront the killers and unintentionally causes the fixer to have a fatal heart attack. But in the movie, Daredevil fights and beats Bullseye and Kingpin and allows him to be taken away by the police. The comic adaptation of the film, however, had a bit more of a violent ending. Daredevil to Daredevil and Bullseye's fight, showing Daredevil impaling Bullseye with a glass shard before throwing him out the window. Additionally, Bullseye is not shown surviving the fall, unlike in either versions of the film. Oh, I'm definitely in agreement about Stick. Uh, Matt would have had to have gained his skills from somewhere, and Stick uh, presents the right answer to that. Not to mention that Stick is the one who helps Matt learn to control his hypersenses, which otherwise would have overwhelmed him. Um, but we'll get into that into more detail soon enough. Um, I'm, I will say that I'm not a fan of having Wilson Fisk as the man who killed Batwin Jack. I don't think that it's necessary to establish Kingpin as uh, Daredevil's nemesis. Um, it strikes me as a bit of a Batman 89 move. Um, to have the arch nemesis kill the hero's parents to build antagonism. But I don't think you need that with Kingpin, as Daredevil already has many built-in reasons to hate Fisk. Uh, Fisk represents everything Matt Murdock hates. He's a bully who considers himself above the law. I feel like having Fisk be Jack Murder, Jack's murder on top of that is unnecessary and a bit too convenient. You make a really good point there with the Batman 89 reference. I, I actually hadn't considered that before. 
Yeah, and, and as a whole, I don't think that this version is that bad, just not what I would have done. Um, I think they get a lot of details right. They just don't get quite why some of the traditional elements of the origin works the way it does. Um, I think if they tried to fudge a few things to move the, thing, the film along, but in the process, they change things that work better in the source material. We are in 100% agreement on the theatrical re release. But again, I'd like to stress, while it can't have fixed everything, the director's cut is, is far superior. Uh, but let's get into Daredevil's show on Netflix and his appearance on the Defender series. Uh, most recently, actually, Daredevil was played by Charlie Cox in Spider-Man uh, No Way Home. Uh, but it was very brief. Um, however, uh, Charlie Cox is the official uh, MCU Daredevil since Feige's announcement and his first appearance in Spider-Man No Way Home, uh, something we've all been begging for since the Netflix show was canceled. But he's not the only one. Uh, Daredevil's nemesis, Kingpin, played by Vincent D'Onofrio, uh, who played Kingpin in the Daredevil Netflix series, made an MCU appearance on the Disney Plus show Hawkeye. At the end of the Netflix show's last season, Daredevil put Kingpin behind bars, but we see that he's clearly out in Hawkeye. But let's talk about his brief appearance in Spider-Man No Way Home. Matt Murdock offers Peter, uh, Peter his services as an attorney because at the end of Far From Home, Mysterio staged his death to make it look as if Spider-Man killed him. Peter is taken into custody by the police at the beginning of No Way Home and meets with Matt for counsel. While at said meeting, someone throws a brick through Peter's window with Mysterio was right scrawled on it and Matt uh, Murdock catches the brick. Peter asks how Matt is able to do this and Matt simply says, I'm a very good lawyer. And actually, the brevity of this scene kind of hangs on that last line. Matt is a very good lawyer. If you want proof, you'll notice that the investigation into Mysterio's murder doesn't ever come up again, at least as far as Peter is concerned, uh, implying that Matt clearly handled it. Oh, that's great. And I love Charlie Cox's Daredevil, so that, that, that's really nice to see. Um, though I've yet to see the movie, um, Matt is, as he says, a very good lawyer. Um, I'm sure he probably did get Peter's charges dismissed behind the scenes. And honestly, from what I remember of Far From Home, it probably would, would have been difficult to make any kind of murder charge stick. So I like to believe that Mac and Matt and Foggy probably would have been able to make that case to go away uh, with enough legal rambling. Um, as for uh, the Kingpin, I have seen Hawkeye, and I'm glad to see that they adapted the Kingpin-Echo relationship in a comics-accurate way. I don't think it's too difficult to believe that Wilson Fisk could have used money and high-priced lawyers to buy his way out of jail and then try to rebuild his empire. Um, I don't know how much of the Netflix series is in MCU canon, but I don't think it should be too difficult to make it all fit. Uh, I don't think so either. Um... That if 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 you remember um, at the be at the very beginning of Daredevil, they 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 full on reference uh, that uh, this this is taking place after the event. They don't they don't specifically say that invasion, but I mean it just it seems like they they kind of planned for it to be part of that all along. So I imagine I, I imagine it would fit pretty easily. Uh, but let's get into the next Netflix uh, series itself. Daredevil is, to my knowledge, regarded as one of the best comic book-based TV shows ever, in my opinion, and rightly so. Uh, we've seen Daredevil in a few incarnations, but the Netflix series seemed to be an absolutely perfect one. They incorporated all the things we love about the character and his history. Oh, absolutely. While I haven't seen the entire series, I've watched a fair amount of it. Um, based on what I have seen, though, I would definitely agree with all that. I feel like the Netflix show truly embraces what Frank Miller was going for better than any Daredevil adaptation to date. 
Um, I want to very briefly mention one important bit of source material, though, and that's Daredevil, the Man Without Fear. Um, this story was based loosely on a failed uh, TV proposal that Frank Miller had submitted for a Daredevil show. And Miller sat on it for years. Um, but when John Romita Jr. said he wanted to do a Daredevil project with Miller, Miller reconsidered an adapted Man Without Fear into a graphic novel project. Um, the graphic novel then became a five-issue miniseries. If you want more details on it, um, I wrote an article for Al Mega on Comic Crusaders called uh, Devil Advocate, The Man Without Fear. Um, and it dissects every issue of the series, and it goes into some heavy analysis if you're interested in it. But um, I'll give you the bare bones here. Uh, for my money, Man Without Fear is the definitive origin of Daredevil. Um, while we've seen the origin of Daredevil done several times, twice by Miller, um, I feel like Man Without Fear is a proper prologue. Uh, to Miller's run on the series. Um, it not only deals with the kingpin in his early days as a crime boss, it also introduces Elektra and Matt's history with Stick. Um, I adore the series and I recommend it as the first thing anyone should read if you're coming to Daredevil for the first time. Um, but I mentioned it because it was also a huge influence on the Netflix TV show. It's most obviously apparent if you look at the season one black costume, which comes straight out of that book. But you can definitely see uh, Man Without Fear elsewhere, like the, the flashbacks where Stick is first introduced. Um, pretty much anything involving the Order of the Chaste, uh, Electra in the Hand, comes straight out of Miller, and especially from that many. Well, that settles it. I'm buying the Man Without Fear. That, that sounds badass. <clears throat> as far as the Netflix Daredevil series goes, the general synopsis, again taken from the Marvel database, is this. In the wake of the invasion of New York, most of Hell's Kitchen is destroyed, and crime is at an all-time high, and the criminal underworld is controlled by a man named Fisk. Matt Murdock and his friend Foggy are up-and-coming defense attorneys in Hell's Kitchen, who are low on cash. Throughout the series, Matthew goes on various changes, goes through various changes, and faces numerous challenges towards becoming the hero he, he's meant to be. The first season focuses on the personal growth of Matthew Murdock and his evolution from being the masked vigilante to becoming Daredevil, but it 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 evolves into. I can talk, but it evolves in to include Matt's relationship with Electra Nachios and Stick, a member of the Chaste. Yeah, this is the period that I've seen so far, and I agree that it handles the early part of Matt's career as Daredevil well. I'm particularly impressed with how good Kingpin is in this show. Um, I feel like the Fisk-Vanessa romance is true to the way Miller wrote it, uh, showing Fisk as both the romantic and the brutal crime boss. And honestly, Vincent D'Onofrio is so good that he looks like John Romita Sr.'s Kingpin. Um, I have to praise the supporting cast on the show, too. Um, I also like that the show focuses on the friendship between Matt and Foggy, because that's a key aspect of Daredevil as a comic. Um, Foggy is Matt's voice of reason, uh, holding Matt back from doing reckless and dangerous things, but he's also loyal and resourceful in ways that Matt isn't. Um, the show also really nailed that, and I like Foggy a lot on the show. Also, Ben Urich is near perfect from what I can see. I mean, he's cynical and burned out, but deep down he's an honest reporter. And uh, Claire Temple was new to me, but I'm a fan of Rosario Dawson, so I'm not complaining. Um, and I liked her character in the show. I, I liked her, too. I, I really liked that she ended up kind of being the link between all the Netflix series. Um, the, the whole show was 
was really well casted and they really unfolded the characters well uh they also had some of the greatest cqb combat i have ever seen with the hallway fight uh the fight on the staircase and that amazing fight with frank castle in the jail in the second season uh just flat out awesome as a martial artist, I, I really enjoyed these scenes and their technical proficiency, thanks to Philip J. Uh, Severa, the fight choreographer of the series. Uh, Philip J. Severa is known for his work on Daredevil, uh, Deadpool, and Terminator Dark Fate. I won't hold Dark Fate against him, uh, but, you're, <laughs> but you're right. The action choreography on the show was really well done. I don't think you can bring up action in Daredevil without thinking of that hallway fight. Um, my job dropped the moment I saw it, and I'm not that easily impressed. So Severo deserves high praise for that. Um, the fights on this show are really cleverly done, but at the same time, it, it also feels more grounded. I mean, Matt takes some pretty heavy hits, and he looks like he's in real pain. Uh, the fight scenes sell those hits very well, it must be said. Oh, hell yeah. Severo impressed the hell out of me, too. Uh, I actually just go back and watch those fight scenes sometimes. Uh, but let's get back into the show itself. Uh, let's talk about Elektra in that series, who no disrespect intended to Garner is the definitive Elektra for me. Uh, they showed that Elektra was born in East Asia and eventually raised by Stick, who trained her in martial arts uh, as part of the chase plans. Eventually, he let her be adopted by the Nachios, uh, Greek ambassadors who couldn't have children of their own. Um, once an adult, Electra was sent by Stick to seduce another of his students, Matt Murdock. They had an intense romance and that uh, ended as they broke into the home of uh, Roscoe Sweeney, who had uh, killed Matt's father uh, a year prior. And Electra eventually brought Roscoe tied up, hoping uh, Matt would exact revenge uh, through murder. Um, Matt instead only punches Sweeney unconscious and called the police as Electra vanished. Uh, she would she would return to New York City years later as Matt became the vigilante daredevil. Oh yeah, I like her as well. Uh, they changed Electra's backstory a bit in this and in ways that are a little weird though. Um, in the comics, uh, Electra was the biological daughter of Ambassador Nachios, and that relationship was modeled along the mythical version of Electra. Um, I don't think it's a big deal that she was adopted in this version, though. Um, what I find odd is that Stick would send her to seduce Matt, but I haven't gotten far enough yet to know if that works or not. Um, I am glad that they inserted the electoral relationship as a backstory element, because I think that's important. Uh, she was the girl that Matt had loved and lost, and they seem to have kept that part intact. Um, all in all, I think there's a lot more good than bad here, and I need to see the, the whole thing to say for sure, but I, it does look great. Oh, uh, it, it's definitely one of my favorites. And and just for the record, uh, it definitely works. <laughs> she pushes Matt to cross lines of morality and ethics, and he is barely able to pull himself back from the precipice. Uh, and Stick is a, a manipulative asshole in this show uh, for all of the good points he makes about practicality. Uh, Stick was a mysterious blind man who specialized in working with uh, gifted children. Uh, he was called to the Saint to the Saint Agnes uh, orphanage due to one of their children, Matt Murdock, being overwhelmed with his superhuman senses. Uh, Stick trained Matt in controlling his gifts and in martial arts. Stick ended up leaving Matt after uh, the boy showed affection for his mentor when he gifted him a bracelet. Uh, almost 20 years later, Stick was in Japan tracking down the mysterious Black Sky. His trail led him to America, where he enlisted Matt, who had become a masked vigilante, to help him. 
as the men he was facing were working with the, the criminal mastermind Wilson Fisk, the man Matt Murdock was after. Murdock agreed to help Stick only if he didn't kill anybody. On the docks, the Japanese were receiving a shipment identified by Stick as the Black Sky. Matt sneakily reduced their numbers with the help of a pair of batons Stick gave him. When the shipment arrived, it was revealed to be a young child. Matt detected how Stick was preparing to shoot an arrow at the kid and managed to deflect the arrow to prevent him from killing the boy. Matt took care of the remaining Japanese at the scene and Stick disappeared. Matt returned to his apartment where Stick was waiting for him. Matt confronted Stick about the attempted murder, but he was corrected when Stick informed him that he ended up killing the boy while Matt was distracted with the remaining enemies back at the docks. Enraged, Matt attacked Stick and the two proceeded to fight in Matt's apartment until Stick was finally knocked out and subsequently left in the apartment, leaving behind a pair of batons. In the wreckage that was left of the, his furniture, Matt found the bracelet he had given to Stick when he was younger. Stick returned to Japan where he reported to a superior that he had taken care of the black sky. Stick's superior, who also asked him about Murdoch, questioning whether he would be ready uh, when the doors were opened or not. And Stick answered he did not know. Awesome. Um, I'm overall pretty happy with the way Stick was introduced on the show. I feel like they got his character generally right. Uh, he's hard and abrasive, often secretive, but generally someone who wants to do the right thing. Um, Matt and Sick have their disagreements, but they'll put those differences aside if it means stopping the bad guys, especially the hand. Um, the actor they got to play Stick looked pretty convincing in the role, too, and they even got the janitor's uniform down. I also feel like the backstory they gave Stick is in line with who he is in the comics, so I have no problems with this character. Yeah, yeah, I really liked uh, I really liked the actor uh, who played Stick. He, he did that. Uh, he did that really well. As we talked about before, the the casting across this whole show was actually pretty good. Um, the show, uh, the Defenders, basically picks up uh, right there at that at that end. Uh, set a set a few months after the second season of Daredevil, and a month after the first season of Iron Fist, the vigilantes Daredevil, Jessica Jones, Luke Cage, and Iron Fist team up in New York City to fight a, the common enemy, uh, Alexandra and the Hand, who have the Black Sky, the most powerful weapon there is, in the form of Elektra, now back from the dead. At the end of the Defenders, it appears that Matt and Electro were killed when a large building fell on top of them. Now, I actually did see most of Defenders, and I thought it was pretty decent. Um, I'm not sure why they needed the Alexandra character, but I won't object to seeing Sigourney Weaver as a villain on a show. Um, mostly it's fun <laughs> just to see the main four Netflix heroes together, especially Matt and Jessica Jones. And I enjoyed uh, watching the fight scenes. I mean, the huge fight in the restaurant episode was a lot of fun to watch. Um, I just wish we'd gotten more of the... Netflix universe after this because I feel like both Defenders and Daredevil had a lot more to say that we never got to see. Uh, definitely, definitely. Uh, I, I, I wanted some more of that too. Um, but well, that that actually about covers our time uh, on the Daredevil discussion. Um, but there's more to get into on this discussion from Steve, Steve Sellers, courtesy of Almega and Comic Crusaders, if the listeners are interested, isn't there, Steve? Oh, absolutely. Um, go and check out uh, Devil's Advocate, The Man Without Fear on Comic Crusaders for my in-depth coverage on that miniseries. Um, I, I'd recommend reading the mini first if you haven't read it, uh, because that article offers a full synopsis of the series. But I also do quite a bit of literary analysis on that story, including a deep dive on Electra. 
Um, I also talk in more depth on the origins of the miniseries based on supplemental materials that I found in the reprints. Um, also be on the lookout for another uh, Devil's Advocate article on Comic Crusaders soon. Um, I had just so much extra prep material for the show that I had to leave a ton on the cutting room floor. Um, we're talking a deep discussion of the entire comic book history of the character. So if you want more DD coverage from me, including what we didn't have time to talk about, I'd be the, on the lookout for that piece. Definitely go check that stuff out. Steve did quite a thorough job detailing the Daredevil's history. And I've checked it out. You don't want to miss this. But for now, let me leave you with this thought. Daredevil is not the man without fear. He is the man who has conquered his fear. I hope you've had fun hanging out with us today on ORP. I know that Steve and I have had fun making this episode. If you've had fun too, we invite you to share this episode and help us get the word out. For our Spotify listeners, we ask you to please rate our show as well. That can really help to grow our audience. But to all our listeners everywhere, we want to say thank you for listening and we'll see you in two weeks.